Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm, I, I shall hope to be short. Um, I'd just like to say uh, some reflections about uh, the two very interesting talks. Uh, the first one, Andy Moravchik's on how populism cannot be implemented, uh, I think is very true, the complexity of politics and so on. That's uh, as against the simple symbolic language of populism uh, is very much uh, a, uh, something I could agree with and I think many of us could agree with. But symbolism is incredibly important in politics. Uh, <coughs> I would argue actually that loyalties are something that are not subject to reason. They are subject to tradition, inheritance, our sentiments. Uh, politics works on passion. Uh, that's my first observation. The second one about Paul Lever's very stimulating talk. Um, <coughs> Willie Patterson, whom he quotes as the famous uh, the UK expert on Germany, reluctant he hegemon. I think that's true, reluctant, <coughs> but actually getting used to it, I would add, <laughs> um, <coughs> and rather enjoying it uh, as a quietly spoken uh, German representative would. Uh, <coughs> my Bavarian niece, has summarized it very well. Uh, she says about herself, tongue in cheek, hauptsächlich mir geht's gut, which really translated mean, as long as I'm fine, the world's great. Uh, I think this is very true about Germany's position. Uh, Germany is very at ease with the EU, and the UK is not. And I think there's some important points that can be brought up, and maybe if I get through what I have to say, I will do so. The uh, talk that I've been given, the subject, is whither the EU, where is it heading? And uh, as an introduction and a simplified statement, I'd say, we're heading somewhere to a Euro federal light, L-I-T-E. Uh, I do think that uh, after all the kisses and hugs between Berlin and Paris, there will be some symbolic uh, Europeanness that will head somewhere in the direction of what Macron wants, but won't change the substance of what Germany wants. Uh, and around that not very hardcore of a federal light Europe. I think there is always the concentric circles of outsiders, of which for the moment I consider the UK still a part. And I'd like to come back to that because I think the UK vision of, if I uh, read it from what David Cameron said in his Bloomberg speech or uh, Margaret Thatcher said in her famous Bruges speech, is not totally incompatible with the German view. 
but there's some significant elements which could be made more compatible and could be made more compatible by us in the UK. Uh, <coughs> the second point I think about where Europe is heading is uh, Tony Blair's Institute for the World. Uh, I think that's what he calls it. Um, <coughs> says that populism has the wind in its sail. And I think this is true. Uh, and it is true for policy failures in Europe. I've lived for 40 or more years in France, and I remember very well in 1990, we my wife and I invited uh, a Swedish choir into our garden who sang beautifully, and then the person who'd uh, invite invited them uh, stayed behind and ate some rubber chicken with us. And uh, he said, well, you know, um, I vote for Mr. Le Pen, and I nearly swallowed my rubber chicken. I thought, my goodness me, how can you possibly do that? Uh, in 1990. But in this recent elections, I agree, Mrs. Le Pen lost. She got 34% of the vote. And Macron only got 43% of the turnout for the election to the presidency. There are some serious issues that are cooking in Europe. And if you like, you can put it very simply. One is mass uh, unemployment in the south, especially in Sicily and the southern toe of Italy, in Greece, in Portugal, and in Spain, Estremadura and in Andalusia. There's terrible unemployment there. These are real questions. Uh, and in Eastern Europe, they are to do, I think, with the fact that a big country like Poland exited from the Second World War in 1990, not in 1945, in 1990. I was given a film by Wajda uh, called Katyn. I don't know if you've seen it, but if you do, take a big whiskey before you see it. It's a terrible film, but Katyn, uh, his father died at Katyn. Um, <coughs> what he's recording is memory. The Cold War, the uh, World War is yesterday for Poland. So when the EU says, uh, we don't want you uh, deep Catholic government in Poland to play around with your judges. From the viewpoint of Poland, the issue is not about judicial independence, it is about abortion, which is the devil's work for them. In other words, Poland still has a big agenda, which it hasn't worked out, because it's only 26 years after the end of the Second World War for Poland. These are very big issues. We can sit back in the EU, we could, I think we would be advised to do so, to say these are the standards which we expect. We have full confidence in the Polish government that they will uphold them, but please get on and sort out your own affairs rather than lecture them. So populism has been in part 
an opportunity by political entrepreneurs, but the opportunities have been given them by, I think, uh, foolish policies. Uh, <coughs> that being said, let me say some optimistic things about the European Union or about Europe. First of all, the EU is the world's emporium. We in, the Europe, in Europe are the world trade center. Uh, number one market for China. Number one market for all of the countries round about us. A massive um, market for inward direct investment from the United States. A massive investor in the United States. The U European Union has 40% of the foreign direct investment stock of the world. This is a very rich part of the world and all of its countries, including Greece, are in the very high development category of the UNCTAD measures of human development. So we are dealing with a very prosperous part of the world. Uh, I think it's also, we should sound our trumpet a little bit. The Europe is actually high performing. Uh, the US, to take an example of uh, a great sporting country, won 126 medals in the 2016 Olympics, which is a formidable <coughs> result. Europe won 380 altogether. In other words, the sporting center of the world is here. As for singing, which I do as a pastime, there are 30 opera houses in China, including the National, the People's, uh, National uh, People's Liberation Army Opera House, please, uh, 52 in the US and 334 in Europe. This is a very wealthy part of the world and is an extraordinary success if you think of where we were in 1945. But, there is obviously a question at the heart of the EU, and that is, it lacks legitimacy, I'm maybe overstating it, but I want to in the short time, it lacks legitimacy for its <coughs> ambitions. Uh, <coughs> definitely, to make a big leap to 2025 along the lines of the five presidents' report, uh, or of Guy Verhofstadt's book about the United States of Europe as a f uh, future. Uh, I think uh, Paul Lever's um, uh, talk makes the point very well. The Germans are very happy with the status quo. The reason, though, why there is, uh, I would argue, a lack of legitimacy is that there is a mismatch between the ambition and the reality of Europe. And the reality of Europe is what I would call a mosaic of interdependent states, um, closely related one to another in many different ways, with their own particular relationships with the rest of the world and their own views on history. This is a very complicated part of the world. It is resistant to one-size-fits-all policies. And yet, the EU does trend towards one-size-fits-all policies, particularly in the euro, the internal market, and so on. 
<coughs> the reason for this is the assumption that was made way back in the 30s, in the 20s, by Jean Monnet, by uh, Sir John Salter and other liberals in the UK, that the nation state was, at the, was uh, a source of war. This is what uh, Mitterrand said to uh, the European Parliament. But it is also the case, to the extent that that is true, I don't believe it's entirely true at all, uh, that nationalism is a cause of war. Of course it is one of the many causes of war, but the nation states are also the essence of a constitutional state. They are both uh, one thing, they can sound the trumpet and the glory and distinguish themselves from others, but they are also the source of democracy. And our democracies in the European Union are very vibrant. The political armies organize, they sound their trumpets, the elections are held, they have their own language, they debate things, uh, they try to implement things, uh, whereas the political space of the EU was created to be relatively apolitical. Uh, <coughs> democracy occurs in our nation states. And people are at ease with their national identity. And this is not just, uh, uh, this can be, you can see that in the uh, opinion polls organized by the European Commission, the Eurobarometer. In 2015, they showed that only 2% of the European population, that's a very big number, that's about 30, 40 million people, think themselves European as defined by Brussels. That leaves about 480 million people who think otherwise. In other words, who think national or regional, or link, they think both European and national. Europeans are at ease with their nationality. Uh, and finally, I think it's worth saying that uh, at the heart of the national issues in Europe is this standoff which we've seen between France and Germany, and actually which is, has very deep roots. It goes back to the discussions of the late 50s between the sixes and the sevens, the EFTA and the EC. Uh, it was very evident in the discussions of uh, 1990, 91, 92, leading up to Maastricht, where the French were really saying, we need a joint economic governance of Europe. And uh, the uh, Germans were saying, ah, yes, but you have to have conditions for balanced budgets, for no bailouts, and so on. Uh, <coughs> these differences came seriously to the head in 2010-2012 and show no signs of abating. I don't need to repeat what Paul Lever has said. Uh, the differences are very considerable between France and Germany. France is really saying, uh, and has done for a long time, we want a Keynesian economic policy for the whole of the EU so we can manage our sticky labor markets, and the Germans are saying, no, we want fi sound finance. And the differences are marked. So what that points to in the future is that Macron, in order to live up to his European 
agenda is really going to have to implement uh, policies that Germany would like. In other words, liberalization of the labor market, décloisonnement uh, of the various interests that keep France together and so on. A liberalization that de Gaulle introduced in 1959 to with great success. Maybe Macron can make it. Uh, if he does, then federal light will become something very serious, much more serious than it is now. It is possible. And that gets us to Brexit, my take on Brexit. Of course, we know what the many reasons were. I think the longer-term trends uh, that led to Brexit were, one, the decline in the uh, working-class base of the Labour Party, especially in Northern England, two questions of immigration, and thirdly, Islam, very important, which I think has been underestimated in uh, the UK. Uh, <coughs> without immigration and without Islam, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say that Cameron, who started out in February 2016 with a 60% probability of, win of winning Brexit, would easily have won it, but he didn't. Um, <coughs> and I think behind that is a simple point. And what I'm going to suggest is that actually uh, we could have, and maybe it's still possible, to learn from Germany. We don't have to have the same cluster of attitudes towards the EU that Germany has. We went. But we could have learnt from it, and we still could. What we could have learnt from is the German Constitutional Court's take on the Lisbon Treaty, which is very specific and which Paul Lever has written about in his excellent book I recommend you to read called Berlin Rules. Uh, the position of the German uh, Constitutional Court on Lisbon, you can get it on the internet, is a very long statement with two key points. The European Union, it says, verbatim, is no more than an alliance of sovereign states. Secondly, very importantly, uh, the German Constitutional Court refers to the inalienable rights of German citizens under the Basic Law of 1949 uh, to be able to, via their votes, shape public policy. In other words, the German Constitutional Court is grounding its whole position to the European Union in terms of defence, oh yes, of sovereignty. It doesn't mention that word. It really is saying what we mean by sovereignty is the right of voters to sanction their legislators. And in the case of the European Union, those legislators, the Council of Ministers, is also the executive. Something which uh, Mr. Schultz uh, has said is an impossible statement, is an impossible uh, position to maintain. Mr. Schultz was the SPD uh, opponent in the recent elections. Uh, <coughs> so what I'm suggesting 
is that we could have changed the terms of the 1972 European Communities Act, Section 2.1. Section 2.1 states that the rules and laws of the EU take direct effect in the UK. And that is underpinned by Section 2, which is the famous Henry VIII Clause. In other words, the Parliament binds itself to be muted. As the waves of legislation coming out and rules and norms and standards coming out of the EU institutions have grown, so more and more of these rules have been interpreted into the UK as they have in other countries. In Germany, there is a major mechanism for appeal. That is lacking, I would argue, in the UK. We needed a mechanism of appeal, of opponent. No, we disagree. No, our fisheries people have surrendered far too much of their access to the waters. No, our apple growers have been hit too badly. We need a mechanism of appeal. Uh, <coughs> I think I recommended, um, and I tried to get this through the Conservative Party networks, uh, that perhaps this was a much better route to do, just change what you do in your own legislation rather than go like David Cameron was and negotiate with all other countries about your own welfare arrangements. In other words, reform yourself first before you negotiate with others. Domestic policy, I would argue, is more important than foreign policy. Uh, <coughs> but this is not done. I think it's possibly doable, but it could be presented in the following way. My proposal would be, for what it's worth, I know uh, maybe nobody will be listening to it, but it's the following. The reality of Europe, and I'm picking up what the German Constitutional Court has said, is that we are an alliance of sovereign states. So let us make a European alliance of constitutional states. Within that, it's quite possible, if we ground it in that vision rather than in the idea of a Europe im Verden, always tending to a future, which Paul Lever said created a lot of tension, I agree. Let's ground it in what it is, a European alliance of constitutional states. And we can then talk about how much supranational elements we may have or not. But it has to be rooted in national politics and in national democracies because that's the reality of Europe. And that reality of Europe is not populist. It's actually the roots of our success. So that's me. I think that's what I'd have to say. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you.